One day, the devil himself, Satan, was walking along the surface of the earth, and by his side was one of his lieutenant demons. So these two are walking. They see before them a man find and pick something up off the ground. So the lieutenant demon says to the devil, what is it that the man found? And the devil said, a piece of truth. So the lieutenant demon, he sees that on Satan's face there isn't a look of frustration or disappointment or anger. So the lieutenant demon says, aren't you upset that the man found a piece of the truth? And in response, the devil said, oh no, I'm actually somewhat pleased because I will help him to make a false religion out of it. And through that, as much as is possible, I'll prevent people from coming to know the truth and even try to pull believers away from their joy. Now, fictional story made up by some preacher, yes. Uh, is it true? I tend to think also the answer is yes, and that it happens perhaps every day, many times over across the world. We're in Second Peter, middle of chapter 2, so open up your Bibles there. As you're finding Second Peter chapter 2, let me give a little overview to the book. Um, there are several key words, and therefore concepts, that are in the book of Second Peter. So let me try to fly through fairly quickly a few of these. If you like taking notes, maybe write down a word or two here and there. One of the words is the word knowledge. If we were to print 2 Peter and take a pen in hand and circle or a highlighter and highlight that word knowledge, we would circle it twice in the first three verses of the whole book, so chapter one, and we would circle the word knowledge in the very last verse of the last chapter of the book. So the book is book-ended with that word and therefore that topic or that concept. In fact, here in chapter 2, in our passage today, we will come across the word knowledge. So is 2 Peter about knowledge? Yes, it is. It's also about how we respond to knowledge. So 2 Peter is about responding or response. What's a good response? Asher covered that in chapter 1. What's an ungodly a rebellious response to the knowledge that God gives, well, that's here in chapter two. Here's a third word, or rather a concept, and it's the concept of assurance. So if Second Peter is about knowledge, then it is also about how we can be assured of what we know about God, who he is, and what he wants us to do. So there's a lot about assurance, and hand-in-hand hand with assurance comes revelation in the book of Second Peter. But if you think in Revelation as in the book of Revelation or even God's written word, think a little bit bigger. So let's change out the noun to a verb. So instead of revelation, let's use the word reveal. How does God reveal himself to us in history in ways that we can understand? 
And then maybe a final concept is responsibility. If we have revelation, we have responsibility. With revelation comes other things, hope, stability. Asher talked about how it helps us to be firm in our faith in chapter one, but today we'll see that with revelation comes responsibility. So let's focus just on that word reveal. How does God reveal himself to us? In the book of 2 Peter, there is not one way or two ways. There are actually four ways that Peter says God reveals himself to us. All four of them are in his book. So those are in your bulletin. Let me go through those. First, God has revealed himself through the Old Testament prophets. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't know the name of Jesus, the coming Messiah, God the Son and the Son of God, but they knew God had a personal name, a proper name, and it was Yahweh. So through Yahweh's prophets, God revealed himself in and through words. So 2 Peter points that out. Here is a way that God has revealed himself. Here's a source of authority. It's the Old Testament prophets and what they wrote. If you read through the book of 2 Peter, and we encourage you, Ryan and Asher and I, if you've not done that already, read through the whole book in one sitting. It doesn't take that long. And you look for prophets or some word that God gives in the Old Testament, you'll come up with two times in chapter 1 and two times in chapter 3. And in chapter 2, we've got the opposite of God's true prophets. We've got false prophets. So really, all of chapter 2 talks about prophets and their revelation as well. So that's number one, Yahweh's prophets. Second, God has revealed himself through the appearing of Jesus, which we would say is his first coming. Chapter one talks about the coming of Jesus, God himself, incarnate in human flesh, talking and living and dwelling among us. So that is certainly a way that God reveals himself. Chapter three will also talk about the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord, but this is his second coming, and Peter will make the point in chapter three that's going to be as sure, as visible, as real as it was the first time. So, um, number three, God has revealed himself to and through the prophets, or sorry, the apostles. And I've put the word present in parentheses here because in Peter's perspective, this brings him up to his present day. Old Testament prophets, Yahweh's prophets, what's that, man? That's distant past. That was centuries ago. The appearing of God in Jesus. Well, that was immediate past, 10 or 20 years ago. God revealing himself through giving inspired and inerrant words to the apostles as they communicate the gospel. Well, that's Peter's own day, and Peter's one of them. So that's the present. You can read about apostles in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3. And back in chapter 1, Peter points out that he and John and James were even a smaller group of apostles that witnessed something called the transfiguration. We won't look at that, but that's a, a, a way of viewing Christ in his glory where the Father speaks audibly and these apostles hear that. So these apostles, especially this smaller circle, are hearing God's audible, visible, literal voice, um, not only of God the Son, Jesus, but of God the Father at the transfiguration. And so they carry on their tradition of Yahweh's prophets. They are the modern day, in the first century, prophets that God speaks through. 
Fourth and finally, God will reveal himself in the second appearing or the coming of Christ. We'll read about that in chapter three, so we just have to wait for Asher to come back, and next week we're gonna be in that fourth and final way that God reveals himself to us, what we call the second coming. So we're ready for our chapter now, chapter two, the false teachers. We started speaking about false teachers last week. The whole rest of the chapter will be on the same topic. Let me start by reading verse 10. And especially those who, and by the way, the those are the false teachers. If we ever have a pronoun of they or those uh, in chapter two, we're just gonna answer it with, man, that's the false teachers. Maybe once or twice it's people they teach to, but it's almost always the false teachers. They indulge in the lust of defiling passion. So there's immorality there, and they despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, who are the glorious ones? We're told in in the next word or two. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So these false prophets, they claim an authority, and it's more than angels. And it strikes Peter as odd because angels, while they're God's messengers, they have direct access to God's throne room. But these teachers are claiming to have more insight into God's true mind and wisdom, words and ways than even angels. So a couple quick observations here. As I said when we were there in the text, The false teachers are immoral in their actions. I think Asher pointed this out last week, that they not only reject authority, but they're immoral in their actions. Those two kind of go together. Theological errors, they lead to moral errors. Truth is not just something we think about and draw on a whiteboard or a scratch piece of paper or our notebook or our journal, and then, well, maybe we'll think about that again in a few days. Truth has direct correlation and application to our everyday lives. Our actions, our words, our interpersonal relationships, our behaviors, our emotional well-being, all of that directly affected by truth. So false teachers despise authority. That's our title for this first section. Well, how do we find what proper authority is? We covered that. God has given us not one, but four ways in which he's revealed himself. Let me take a few minutes to put 2 Peter alongside another New Testament book, kind of a sister book or a companion book. And you might be thinking, oh, Ron's gonna talk about 1 Peter. No, the sister book to 2 Peter is actually the book of Jude, a very short book. It doesn't even have more than one chapter that is right before the book of Revelation. Let me try to show you a few parallels. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, the passage we just read, or the two verses, we read that the false teachers indulge in the lust of defiling passion and they despise authority. So we put this together in a chart for you to look at. So here's the top row of that chart. Here's verse 10 of 2 Peter 2. They defile their bodies and they despise authority. They blaspheme the holy ones. Look at what Jude says. Really the same thing. These people, Judas talking about false teachers, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Some people think Jude wrote just a year or two before Peter, and therefore he might be borrowing 
Other people think uh, the guys are contemporaries, so they, they had some meeting. I kind of like this idea, but who knows what happened. So they sat down over you know, a nice lunch, and they said, oh, you're thinking of writing a letter that's got the same topics I'm thinking about. Let's brainstorm and come up with some good phrases and topics and illustrations from the Old Testament, and let's just use some of the same things. So who knows what happened? But here are just one or two other examples. First, or Second Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says the false teachers are like unreasoning animals. Jude has the same two words in Greek. They get translated as the same two words in English. Jude, verse 10. Second Peter, also in our passage today, say, they, the false teachers, have followed the way of Balaam. Well, who is Balaam? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And they loved gain from the wrongdoing. So they were getting some material benefit, reward, payment, bribery for leading people astray. Jude says the same thing. In fact, there's a third book. So if you'd like good parallel reading to 2 Peter, read Jude for a third recommendation, the book of Revelation. They all talk about similar topics, Christ's second coming, and what the church is to do now, waiting for his second coming, often in the middle of a world that hates Christ. So that spiritual battle that takes place as we wait the literal second coming of Christ. Jude is somewhat of a preface or an introduction to the book of Revelation. So if you want something real, real short, read Jude. If you want something real, real long, Read Revelation. It's like a movie, but you're not looking at it. You're reading the script of all these different scenes and images. If you want a middle ground, 2 Peter is the book for you. I'm not saying they all say the same thing, just different lengths, as if Jude were cliff notes to the book of Revelation. They still each have their unique nuances and themes, but they do form a trilogy. There is that kind of commonality between the three. And as one example, if you were to do a search for Balaam, this Old Testament prophet in the whole New Testament, you'd only find Balaam talked about in three books. And they are those three, 2 Peter, Jude, the book of Revelation. All right, let's go to the next section of 2 Peter. We've seen the false teachers, that they're both immorally corrupt and they despise authority, God's revelation, or they, we'll learn that they take pieces of truth and they add to it or subtract from it so that they don't teach a true gospel. Let's continue reading. Verse 12. But these, who are they? The false teachers again. Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed like those. They're blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey, in fact, spoke with a human voice 
and restrained the prophets of madness. These, who are these? Again, it's the false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So this section we're going to call false teachers turn away from the right way. Now, I counted all the word pictures, the illustrations, the images in these verses, maybe eight verses long, and I came up with 10, 11, 12 different images. So, you know, things like mists or blots and blemishes. So there's a ton of images here. And we don't have time to go through each one of them. We'd be here for four or five hours. So I decided let's focus on one. It's kind of the centerpiece, and it's Balaam as a prophet. So let's set some context for who this guy Balaam is. The setting is the book of Numbers, one of the first five books of the Bible, chapter 22. You can turn there, but I'll put some passages up on the screen. And we'll go through some of these fairly quickly. So here's the context. The people of Israel have left Egypt. They've wandered through the wilderness, almost at the end of 40 years of wandering. They have now come to a land called Moab. So Moab is on the east side of the Dead Sea. The land of Canaan, the promised land, that's on the west side. They've just got to go a little bit farther north on the map on our screens, up and to the right. Then they'll head west. They'll take a left, so to speak, around the northern tip of the Dead Sea and enter in through Jericho. They're so close. So there's our context. Except here's a question. There were several false prophets mentioned in the whole Old Testament. Why do you think Peter chose Balaam? In fact, there are some later in time when there were kings uh, and Israel had a court, uh, which might have been better candidates for a true false prophet, somebody who was really wicked. Why choose Balaam? Well, part of the point I've already mentioned, and that is the context. So the Israelites come out of Egypt, which is sometimes in Scripture a symbolism for our former bondage to sin. They're on a journey now without a home. That's us, the church. They're close to the promised land for us, the second coming of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth. Peter will talk about that in chapter three. The Israelites were so close they could see it. If they got high up, high up enough in elevation, in the land of Moab, they could look across and see the promised land across the, the Dead Sea. And Israel had leaders like Joshua who would urge them to persevere, who would say, in effect, to the Israelites, I know there's conflict, there's tension, there's even people trying to kill us, but persevere, believe in Yahweh in his words. And the Israelites had clear revelation the kind that Peter talks about in 2 Peter. God had revealed himself through the plagues of Egypt, through the passage through the Red Sea, certainly by words even on Mount Sinai to Moses. So there are a lot of parallels with the church in Peter's day. All right, that's the context. Who was Balaam? Well, in the ancient world, kings, and in fact, everyone believed in some combination of gods and goddesses. So bottom line, there are no atheists in the ancient world. I know there are today. I dialogue with one or two of them every week in person or by email, but there weren't in ancient times. In addition, all kings in the ancient world believed in magic. So when you think magic, 
And I want you thinking Penn and Teller and card tricks. By magic, we mean trying to access the ancient, unseen, spiritual, invisible world. So why would you want to access the spiritual world? Well, maybe one reason is I want my wife to be pregnant and give birth to a healthy son. Or on the flip side, maybe I want bad to happen to someone that I'm in competition with for a job. Now I'm going to seek out what we might call a shaman, some kind of person that does what is really witchcraft or attempts to do that. The best shaman in the ancient world of Moab's day was this guy named Balaam. He wasn't from Moab, so the king of Moab is going to seek him out from a different country, a different land, and offers him a lot of money to come and curse the people of Israel. Now, is Balaam a good guy or a bad guy? That's what my grandson, who's three years old, that's what Lucas is always saying. Good guy or bad guy? Um, well, Balaam is a little bit of a good guy and a whole lot of a bad guy. <laughs> He's a little bit of a good guy because God tells him to bless Israel and not curse them, and that's what Balaam does. He does not do what he's hired to do by the king of Moab, which is curse the people of Israel. And God does talk with Balaam, and Balaam, to a large extent, listens. But we'll see in a few verses here in different books why Balaam's mostly a bad guy. Here's what Joshua has to say about Balaam when Joshua, in the book of Joshua, is recounting those days of Moses when they were wandering in the wilderness. Uh, so just listen to this or look up on the screens. Joshua chapter 13, verse 22. Joshua says, Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. Now maybe Joshua meant Balaam, the guy who used to practice divination. He's well known, you've heard about him. Uh, you know, in his younger days, he practiced a lot of divination and was a shaman, but he didn't do that when the king of Moab hired him and he interacted with the Israelites. And I don't think that's what Joshua is saying. For one thing, there's another way of saying it. You could talk about the past. But look at what happens to Balaam. He gets killed by the Israelites along with Israelites who rejected Yahweh and turned their back on him. So they didn't embrace him. They didn't say, oh, we recognize a fellow worshiper of Yahweh. You're not of our ethnicity, but we welcome you into our people. That certainly happened in Israel's history. They didn't say that. Second, look with me at Numbers. And we'll go back to the very account of Balaam in Numbers chapters 22, 23, and 24. In Numbers 24, verse 1, here's what we read. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, that's what a shaman does. They interpret the unseen world by omens. Now, maybe this meant Balaam didn't look for omens like he did in his past, like the Joshua verse. But the other times here, the natural way of understanding that is chapters 22 and 23, the other times that the Lord interacted with Balaam and told him, to bless Israel instead of cursing them. So it's very clear that what Balaam is doing is listening to Yahweh, even obeying Yahweh, but keeping his other gods and goddesses. He's taking a piece of the truth, or two or three pieces of truth, but adding into that 
his own way of interpreting the unseen world and his own worship of, of other gods and goddesses. Balaam could have turned away from them and become a worshiper in Yahweh and Yahweh alone, but he chose not to. So first, Balaam has an interesting context that parallels the believers of Peter's time, leaving Egypt on a journey, leaders who encourage you to persevere, looking forward to the promised land. Second, Balaam, like the false teachers of Peter's day, combines false truth with real truth. Here's a third and final parallel. Note that in 2 Peter 2.15, uh, they, the false teachers, forsake the right way. Let, let's read that again. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, key word there is way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way, there it is again, of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Okay, so our question here is, do we read about a way, do we read that word back in the book of Numbers? And we do. Numbers 22, verse 21. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. The angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his, Balaam's, adversary. Now, he was riding on the donkey. His two servants were with him. This is the story where in a couple of verses, God makes the donkey talk with real human words to let Balaam know how wrong he is. The word way occurs eight or nine times in this one account of Balaam. So this one part of chapter 22. Here's another place where it occurs. And this will confirm what we think is true of what Joshua said and what was said by the narrator Moses elsewhere in Numbers. So look at Numbers 22 up on the screen, starting at verse 31. The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, this is after the donkey talks, and he, Balaam, saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. He bowed down and fell on his face. What else could he do? You and I would do the same thing. The angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way, there's our word again, is perverse before me. Now, this Hebrew word for perverse is not a real common word, but it has with it a connotation of being reckless. So going kind of headlong and quick into something. Inserting your own opinion into things. In this case, and I think this is why Peter likes Balaam as an example, almost as if you're saying, God, I get your words, I get your opinion. I've got some stuff to add to it. I can improve upon it. You're not quite on track, on target here. I can do better. So let's go on to our third and final section in chapter two. Now the book of first or second Peter, before we read this last section of chapter two, second Peter has a couple parts that are somewhat difficult to understand and we're about to enter into one of those. So the question here as I read through this is it seems as if it's saying that the false teachers were true believers. They were converted. They were given new life by God because they now follow Jesus. And then they lose that. As if they were in Christ, now they're out of Christ. They're no longer saved. Does the text say that? That's our kind of difficult question here. As I read through this, be watching for the word overcome and then be watching for a cluster of words that 
teach us about God's revealing himself. So here we go. Uh, I'll start at verse 19. They, we're still talking about the false teachers, promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then we end with the proverb, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's call this section, false teachers cannot overcome their nature. So does this teach that a person can become a Christian and then leave Christ? Almost as if, hey, in Christ for two years, and decide a minute, that's not for me, out of Christ for five years. Realize that's a big mistake. Become a Christian again and be truly in Christ for 10 years. Can that kind of a thing happen? Did the false teachers have genuine faith? I think the text answers that with a resounding no. In many ways, let me give you two of them. There's a way at the beginning of this passage and a way at the end in which Peter is telling us their nature has never changed. Let's go back to the beginning. Verse 19. They promised them freedom. They themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, there's our key word overcome, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, okay, there has been revelation here. God has revealed himself to them. They've had a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What if they're entangled again in them and overcome? Uh, the last state is even worse than the first. Here's one way of summarizing this passage. In time, we are all going to be overcome by something. And by all, I don't just mean those of us in this room, every human being. In time, everyone will be overcome by something. This Greek word means to be subordinate to, to kind of almost like to bend the knee, uh, figuratively speaking, to someone or something else. So, that's true of everyone. Here's, here's a quote I've heard before. Everyone worships something. And again, that means every human being. You might say, wrong. What, what about an atheist? An atheist doesn't worship. No, no, he or she does. If worship means to value something or someone highly, take it out of a religious context, then everyone worships something or someone. The atheist simply worships one of four or five or six different things. Some atheists worship the natural world, some worship the scientific method, others worship simple pleasures. Uh, I'm dialoguing now online with an atheist. Uh, there's a former student of mine, and, and he is basically saying and quoting Camus, a famous philosopher, who said this out of despair and depression. Camus said, when I wake up in the morning, I don't know whether to drink a cup of coffee or commit suicide. My friend isn't seriously thinking of suicide. However, he does think about that quote now and then because he wakes up and he basically thinks, what is there to live for? Not a whole lot. There are some pleasures I can derive out of life. And at least, at least now in my life, 
The despair and negatives and downsides are not there and there continuously over time so that they outweigh the simple pleasures. So I'm going to drink my cup of coffee. I won't give serious thought to suicide. But that's a quote that my friend honestly thinks about intellectually more than once a month. Here's the way someone else worded it. Every one of us, and again, every human being, is walking on a path. We're either walking toward the heavenly country, toward Christ, and death is only a transitional stage from one part of the journey to another, or we're walking on a different path toward darkness, a path of separation from God and all things good. And in that journey as well, death is just a transitional stage. And that's true of every person. Every person, man, woman, boy, girl, walks on a path headed in a direction and will end up at that direction with one exception. Due to God's love and his mercy, God plucks people out from walking on the path of darkness and puts them on the path to light, to Christ, to resurrection, to new life, to new heavens and the new earth, and gives people a new family, gives people a new heavenly father. Amen. We don't move back and forth between those two paths with that one exception. So the point of the first two verses is this. We're all going to be overcome by something that something is going to reveal our true nature. You and I, Christians, most of us in this room, we are overcome by Christ. We want to be overcome by him. Now let's look at the end of this passage and see another piece of evidence why the false teachers were never believers in the first place. Here's our proverb. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is pretty straightforward. I don't know that this needs a whole lot of explanation. This is not a difficult part of 2 Peter to understand. Keep in mind, Peter could have used some other proverbs, and the other proverbs could have taught us a true change in nature. So to just throw some off the top of my head, he could have talked about a caterpillar that becomes a butterfly. Well, that certainly looks like a completely different animal. He could have talked about, to go from animals to plants, a seed or a nut falls from a tree, gets buried in the ground. It looks like it's dead. It looks like it's nothing. It's just going to decay. And guess what? The rains come and it becomes a plant. And you see green leaves and flowers and it becomes a tree. That would be a neat transformation kind of proverb. But he doesn't pick any of those. So his first illustration is the dog. Kind of three stages here, right? The dog's in a bad state. Its little dog body is hurting because there's something in its stomach that's bad. Stage number two, the dog says, I'm going to help my dog body and vomit this out. So now I'm clean, I'm purified. But has the dog's nature changed? No, because stage three, the dog goes back, eats the vomit, the bad stuff's back in the, the little dog body. No change in nature at all. I was trying to think of like a non-biblical modern-day illustration, and I've got to tell you the first thing that came to my mind, which would be uh, an honest sharing, and my wife here can confirm this. So at least once a year, this is what I do. I go to Carla, and I say, I'm going to diet. And I'm going to tell you exactly how I'm going to diet. 
It's going to be a veggies and fruit diet. Maybe a little bread. I can't do that bread. Maybe a little bread. But no meat. Certainly no sugar. Just veggies and fruit. So I'll tell Carla, I know there's some apples and fruit already, because she does good at buying veggies and fruit. I know there's some stuff in the fridge. But you've got to buy me some more at Smith's, because I'm on this diet. I'm going to stick to it. Now, the diet lasts all three days. If you were to ask Carla after the service, she would say, no, Ron, it lasts like a day. And then it's done with. You know, I see a home-baked fresh cookie or something, and it just goes out the window. So yeah, I've had a few apples in that 24 hours, but it just doesn't last. So if you were to ask Carla, did Ron really change during that three days, which in reality was one day? Was there any real change? She wouldn't even answer your question. It's like a stupid question. <laughs> You'd just shake her head, laugh, and walk away. So there's no change. Well, that's the dog. The uh, pig is the same way. I've read that pigs are actually very clean animals, that they only like to sit down in mud because they can't sweat like we do. So they've got to cool their bodies in some way. Um, but we're dealing with proverbs here, not with science. And in the ancient world, as well as our time, they observed the same thing. Pigs, when they grow up, they're big, heavy animals. If you put them in a pen and there's grass, the grass is only going to last for a day or two. It's going to get trodden under and become dirt and then mud. And yes, they like sitting down in mud. So they were thought to be proverbially dirty animals. Um, so in this pig, the same three stages as the uh, dog. The pig's dirty. It says, as if it were a human speaking or thinking, got to clean myself up, wash myself. But then what's the true nature? It likes the mud. So it goes back to the mud. There's no change there. So the false teachers don't change. If there was change, it was superficial. Let's look to apply a few things from this uh, second half of Second Peter chapter 2. We don't know specifically what the false teachers promoted or taught. There are a few indications, though, if you put your Sherlock Holmes hat on and you look for some clues. There are a few small indications. Uh, I'll just point out one. We read earlier that they proposed or promised freedom to people that would follow them. Now, freedom is a, is a good word, and it's a word found in the Bible. In Galatians, Paul talks about us being freed from the slavery to sin. But it's clear the teachers are using it in an ungodly way. So what we'll do in these last few minutes is try to envision uh, a spectrum, a horizontal line, and in the middle of that line, we're going to say that is Christ only and always. You might just want to write Christ only. That's the middle of the line. To the right of that, we're going to imagine that there's Jesus or Christ plus. You know, if you like taking notes, just use a plus sign. And to the left of that, we're going to envision Jesus minus. So this is what false teachers do. At least false teachers within the church, not teaching another, say, world religion. Um, they will take that center, what we would agree with, and what the Bible affirms. So what are good, true, positive things? Jesus is God, come in the flesh to die in our place for our sins on the cross, he rose again. If we trust in his death, 
turn away from ourselves, our program of self-righteousness or self-salvation. Does that mean we've got to get cleaned up and get rid of all our sins? No. But we turn from ourselves to Christ and trust in what he did, not our own efforts. God forgives us and does more than forgive us. Gives us new life, puts us in a new family, gives us a new home to look forward to. That's all true and scriptural. What would be adding to that? Well, false teachers come along and they'll say, do that and more in order to be saved, not as a result of being saved, in order to be saved. So one example might be baptism. You have to be baptized and will not be saved, forgiven by God, until that happens. Baptism is not a result of salvation, something everyone should do in following Christ's command. It is something required for salvation. And there are a dozen other examples of adding to the gospel. What would subtracting from the gospel be? What would a Jesus minus thing be? Well, that can take a variety of applications, but one of them has to do with this offer of liberty or freedom. So one way of a Jesus minus is to say, uh, here's what the gospel is. And this is false teachers saying this. The gospel is just saying Jesus died for my sins. That's all. And of course, not deceiving others by saying that, but some measure of sincerity. That's, that's all the gospel is. Um, do you have to believe that Jesus is God? No, no, no. That's, that's too much. He can just be a human being that is better than the rest of us or some angelic being that is an intermediary between human beings and God. No, no, no. That's too much for your brain to handle, that God can come down as a human being and be fully God and fully man. No. Um, just, just say you believe in him. Or maybe, maybe a little step further. Say you believe in him and he took care of your sins on the cross. Do I need to understand what sin is? Do I need to understand my correct standing with God? A person might say to the false teacher and the false teacher would say, no, no, no. That's too much to handle. So that would be a Jesus minus. Because there are elements to the gospel that have to be understood. There are things that are not negotiable. We would not say of other false teachers, we don't know of any in our church, but you can certainly open up media by your tablet or laptop or cell phone and, and within a few seconds be listening to a false teacher in this world. That's what false teachers will say. And false teachers will also say we shouldn't criticize them or false teachers. So there's a little second dynamic of Jesus minus, which would say this. God is love. God is compassion. God is forgiveness. Therefore, we should never criticize other people. We should never disagree with them. In fact, you know what? Everybody might be right. Maybe everybody goes to heaven. Certainly all the people that have some belief and some level in Jesus go to heaven. And, and maybe, say the false teachers, um, even those that don't say that, God gives them some kind of credit and there is no hell and there is no separation from God. Those would be some examples of a Jesus minus kind of a thing. So how can you make sure that you're not a false teacher? You're probably pretty sure of that. But how can you make sure that you don't even take that first step toward what in 50 steps ends up being false teaching that you believe and maybe share with others? Two ideas here as we guard ourselves 
and guard the gospel. One, read parts of the Bible that affirm the gospel. The best part would be Romans chapters 1 through 5, although there are other passages. Read Romans 1 through 5. That is an explanation of what the gospel is. Paul doesn't add to it. He doesn't subtract from it. And then read Romans 6, 7, and 8. That will give you an application of the gospel, what it should result in in your life, but not things that are required to become saved. So make that difference. Here's the gospel. Here's what happens in my life or what should happen after the gospel. It won't happen perfectly, but it should be there on some level to some extent. And then second, gather around yourself people you trust that seem to have properly understood and are applying Romans chapters 1 through 8. Again, imperfectly. And maybe share with them if you have doubts. Hey, friend, here's what I think the gospel is. Can you check me on this? Am I adding to it? Am I subtracting from it? And see what they have to say. In a minute, we'll sing a song. Here are a few lines from it. It is a great summary of the true center of the spectrum we're talking about. So here's what we'll sing in a minute. Christ is all. Man, what, what a great, concise summary statement. I really meant to summarize the book of Colossians. Three words, one syllable each, dang, you're done. Now, do we need a little bit more than that? Well, we actually do. We wouldn't go to the world and proclaim, just believe Christ is all. Do you believe that? Yes, okay, you're fine. So we've got to have a little more, but that's a great line to sing and think and say through the day. He is our sovereign God, our King. There, we need that along with that so that people don't get too subjective with Christ is all. He is our God and our King. And with his blood, he was the perfect offering for we who once were enemies, he now presents us clean. Christ is all. So let me pray, and then we're going to sing through, basically, phrases from the book of Colossians. Father, we thank you for this book of Second Peter. We thank you that you encourage us to guard what you have revealed to us not add to it and not take from it. And to try our best to prevent friends and family members from doing one of those two things. Father, we're thankful that in 2 Peter chapter 3, he will encourage us to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, and indeed we do. Father, we look forward to Christ's second coming as a bride or a wife looks forward to meeting her husband again who has been away for some time. We say with the end of the whole Bible, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And yet we also say, we know it is your will and desire and longing that other individuals and people groups come into the kingdom and come to believe in Jesus before that second coming. So we rejoice in both of those truths, that he will come soon and that you will gather others to him before he comes. May we sing now with joy in our hearts and our minds that Christ is indeed all. Amen.